0: Thank you for that nice introduction. It's good to be back. I've been in Arabia for 35 years and uh, just moving, sort of transitioning back to, uh, to Washington uh, with, was with Saudi Aramco. But out of those 35 years, I spent 25 years with the American Business Association in the eastern province uh, doing many sort of things with them. Uh, Doing issues development, I was vice president to the organization for maybe 10 years. Clearly, we didn't believe in regime change. We sort of uh, stayed with it, so we've got the Chairman Dave Cantrell out there. But we've also got, uh, I was also, um, during my tenure out there, uh, chairman of the regional AmCham's, the Middle East uh, uh, Council of the American Chambers of Commerce. And with the U.S. Chambers of Commerce and affiliation, we used to come back to Washington and run uh, doorknock campaigns up on the hill talking about public policy issues that basically affected trade in the region, basically taxation issues of uh, how do we keep Americans abroad. Um, We talked about building capacity on trade and public policy side of things, uh, standards cooperation with the Saudi government to make sure that American products didn't get excluded Unnecessarily from the uh, from the uh, market, um, we also looked at foreign military sales as a key component of uh, of our uh, trade posture and security assistance program. So, it was a very good 25 years that I had out there with the American Business Association. But the bottom line was that you know we wanted to make sure that uh, we maintain capacity out there. It wasn't just easy to you just don't I mean today's world uh, 2013 figures. Uh, $70 billion worth of exports to the to the region. Um, basically 75% of that goes to the GCC. That just doesn't happen by somebody calling up and ordering off the internet. Doesn't happen by having Amazon deliver by FedEx. You have to have a sales force out there. Americans committed on the ground. You've got to basically make sure they stay there. Sustainability is key. We're competing with international trading partners that basically have a uh, an advantage over us. Uh, Americans that go abroad are taxed based on citizenship and not residency. Um, all other trade competitors except for the Philippines are based, uh, are taxed on, uh, on residency. So, you know, as unfortunately Dave Camp was getting the message up on the Hill, Rep Camp was uh, chairman of Ways and Means and he was coming to the conclusion that maybe a territorial-based bas- taxation scheme would be advantageous unfortunately he's decided to step down so again we talk and we will be talking that uh in the coming years as we continue to march up on the hill basically once a year they bring back the american business associations bring back about 30 business leaders many of the people uh corporate reps out there go to the hill for about a week of discussions and we i think run about 250 to 300 meetings talking on these issues and talking sustainability. Dave Bosch was uh, president of the American Business Association in the Eastern Province before moving back to Washington. Les Janka, who's in the audience, I believe, was president of the American Business Association in Riyadh. Uh, the Amer- AmCham in Abu Dhabi is uh, vibrant. The one in Dubai is vibrant. Oman is sustaining itself. Kuwait is up and running. Uh, Qatar is there. We've got a chapter in Riyadh. And a chapter in Jeddah. So, for the last 25 or 30 years, these are the unsung heroes of the trade war. I mean, we have been, and, and also in conjunction with the Chamber of Commerce here in Washington, and the Department of Commerce, uh, through their uh, commercial attaches all around the Gulf, have provided capacity to compete for American business and and continue to move forward and build momentum. Uh, but having that's my. That's my line, I'm sticking to it. But the, basically it's American export. Americans abroad equals uh, 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 American exports, they generate uh, exports and then uh, and that translates into jobs at home. The metric we used was basically, when we talked these issues, was about for every billion dollars worth of exports, uh, 16,000 direct jobs were supported or created Uh, 32,000 indirect jobs were sustained. So if you do the math, it's $70 billion, um, you know, any given year uh, and moving forward, it's increased by 5%, I think it was 7% over 2012. You know, we're making progress, jobs at home are being created, jobs at home are being sustained, but it's through the good efforts of business community out in the region, uh, the cooperation that we have with our local chambers uh, of industry uh, there, also throughout the GCC. it's a good story and i think it's worth sustaining. so I, but having said that i think dr zugby's point was simply that look you know what people out there want is just exactly what we want back here. you know it's education for our children, medical care, infrastructure capacity build, accommodation of new and emerging technologies. so what's the future? the future is when we look at uh, you know the number of children out there that are under 20 60%, according to Judith Kipper, or whatever the number you want to use, it keeps shifting the goalposts, keep moving all the time. The point is, either you're, if you're a politician or a political scientist or a historian, you look at this as a tremendous source of instability. If you're a banker, a finance guy, you look at this as a great boon for the future. It's, job, it's, it's banking, lending opportunities, housing creation, people have to buy things, You know, families are going to be formed so is it economically uh, p- potentially a benefit or is it a political detriment you know that is something that the uh, that the business community looks at and says fundamentally it's good for everybody because if that's you know if these young people are going to move in and become you know with a mindset of being entrepreneurs and creating value and creating wealth and building capacity getting married and having their own children and buying household goods. This is all economic activity that is beneficially a good thing. So, but I don't want to hog the podium because I think we've got some excellent presentations coming up. We've got, I wanted to talk about students, uh, uh, what's it, 100, 100, 90,000 students uh, from Saudi Arabia alone are in the United States. Uh, uh, They are here for four years. Uh, part of that educational process is taking what they've learned back home. But it's also, it just doesn't end when they get a BA. And I think Nala's going to talk about that. Uh, next, we're going to talk about the capacity build on aircraft and aviation, the industry generally in the region. Mr. Johnson from Qatar Airways is with us. Um, Dr. Wright, I think you're afterwards, you're going to talk about the uh, Egypt-Jordan uh, economic uh, situation with regard to uh the studies that you just completed and looked at um let's see doctor let's see after that's ambassador thuro from the economic development board of, um, of qatar um and then we're going uh, to talk about bahrain we're going to talk about bahrain and then we're going to have the u.s chamber rep stephen lutz bring up the entire uh, put the whole package together and say this is what's happening in the region from a macroeconomic perspective this is where the opportunities are and uh, so business is focused pretty much on the bottom line so we'll try to keep it short sweet seven to nine minutes on schedule and uh, have some deliverables on terms of insights and opportunities thank you
1: Ladies, gentlemen, and uh, distinguished guests, assalamu alaikum. Um, I head the um, Center for Career Development, that's uh, part of the Saudi Arabian Cultural Mission. What we basically do is we, the Saudi Cultural Mission, oversees uh, currently over 92,000 students studying in the United States at various uh, at various levels and uh, with they are uh, majoring in every possible major you can think of, and even ones that you haven't thought of. Um, what we do at the center, um, we, um, uh, the center was established in March of 2013 to assist Saudi students in um, broadening sk- their skill sets, deepening their professional experience by connecting them with potential internship and uh, training opportunities in the United States, and also by helping them find jobs in the kingdom with Saudi and international companies. Another reason for um, establishing the center was to build uh, relationships with companies in need of talented um, Saudi employees to help them meet their business operational needs and also to satisfy um, Saudi government requirements to promote employment of Saudis in all economic sectors. So um, the need for the center becomes evident when we consider the number of students in the United States. Um, just to give you an idea, currently we ha- well, We have 92,278 students studying in the United States, bachelor, masters, and PhDs. Um, As I'm talking, the number's changing. It's not um, a static number. It's It's a very dynamic number. It keeps changing. Um, That number, um, when compared to last, if we look at last year's statistics, we've seen an increase of about 10,000 students. Last year, we had 82,547 students. Um, uh, This year um, we um, celebrated the graduation of over 10,500 students, an increase from 7,200 plus from last year. So we see the numbers are increasing annually. now that we have, done, we have created the center, what are the benefits for students training in the United States? Why do we want them to train here? Well, um, <laughs> the center is trying to assist students in finding internships and uh, opportunities because we believe that students will gain from their experience. Um, it, uh, these ex- um, internships will provide opportunities for translating classroom learning into um, practical experience. It, it will provide them exposure to um, potential employers before making um, a final decision uh, uh, or final commitment about their future. Um, they will also provide for, uh, allows for cultural exchange between company employees and Saudi student or and graduates. I mean, being business people, you know that if you have uh, cultural misunderstandings, you may be paying a, a hefty price because of that misunderstanding. So by um, working with US companies, you eliminate some of the problems. Now now we know what the benefits are for the students. What are the benefits for companies that partner with our center and provide internship and training opportunities for our students? Well, um, there are many, so I'm not gonna list all of them, but I will list some of them. One is you you would have access to a large pool of well-educated Saudi students. Um, You will have lower overseas training costs of future students because they're trained here, instead of taking them over to Saudi Arabia and bringing them back here. Um, You'll have an opportunity to know prospective employees before um, offering permanent employment, Um, so you're not bound by um, um, contracts that can be uh, difficult to break. And you'll have the cultural exchange between company employees and Saudi students graduates, so employees get to know what we're like, um, which is oft- sometimes different what you would read uh, or see in the media. Um, the um, and uh, uh, continuing on with the benefits, uh, I want to add a side note. Students in the United States who are on an F-1 visa, which is a student visa, are allowed by the US government to work in the United States with that visa for 12 months, and if there are STEM students, for 20, 29 months. So if you're planning to hire students for one year or so, you don't have to worry about changing the visa status. You don't have to file paperwork, pay for, expensive, the, for the process. So that's, that comes as part of the package. Um, <clears throat> Going now that we've mentioned the benefits for these companies in the US, what about the benefits for companies that are in Saudi Arabia? They're basically the same. Uh, um, one thing uh, uh, or two things I would like to add for the benefits uh, for Saudi company or companies in Saudi Arabia is one, um, by um, working with us, we can help them reach students um, for, uh, to fill uh, positions instead of um, them coming to the United States, trying to recruit them, incurring um, costs of travel uh, expenses and all of that. We do it for them. The other one is by um, hiring Saudi students um, that have been educated in the United States. They're hiring students who are familiar with the U.S. culture, the language, so that in the future when they are dealing with their American counterparts, they know where they're coming from, so that would lead to better communications and better um, business deals. Okay, now that we have had that, the benefits and everything, how can you connect with the Saudi students? What are the um, services that we provide you to reach our students? We have a lot of them, uh, we have many of them, and um, some of them would be um, we, allow, we um, post ads on our websites, we have a job board, we have job fairs, uh, et cetera. I have put out a flyer, it's up front, that um, briefly describes the benefits that we offer. At the same time, it also provides some statistical information. I didn't want to go through the statistical, or the data, because I know it can be very boring listening to numbers, so I let you look at it at your leisure. <clears throat> and that about wraps it up for me. I was going to do longer, but I know that we were pressed for time, so I cut it short. If anybody has any questions about um, the services that we provide, please feel free to um, approach me or send me an email. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions. And remember, dealing with us is beneficial for all of us because we are providing you with students to fill positions that you need to, be, to have filled and we benefit because our students are getting an experience that they need to take back home, Saudi Arabia. And thank you so much.
2: Thank you, John. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, Dr. Anthony, David Bosch. First of all, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak about Qatar Airways today. And today is very poignant because exactly a year ago that Qatar Airways joined the One World Alliance. Qatar Airways is not only a highly decorated rapidly expanding global aviation service but we are the blueprint for the 21st century airline a truly global company meeting the demands of a new generation of international travelers who are flying further and taking their business far beyond borders the airline business is the most competitive in the world ...influenced by a great number of external factors, and with margins always under extreme pressure. But despite this, Qatar Airways has grown 30% year on year since inception. From our home in Doha, capital of the state of Qatar, we have expanded to 145 destinations across six continents... ...serving 18 million annual passengers on the industry's youngest fleet, comprised now of 134 of the most modern, state-of-the-art aircraft. But the company's primary ambition has never been to be the largest airline, but rather to be the world's best airline. Even as we've expanded our horizons, Qatar Airways has received an endless number of awards and accolades for our service, both in the air and on the ground. We are named the the world's best airline in 2011 and 2012 by Skytrax and proudly stand with an elite group that holds the coveted five-star rating amongst airlines. But airlines of the 21st century can't simply be about size and service. The whole industry must be committed to being an economic driver for the global community, one which facilitates growth and brings new opportunities and allows businesses to consider new partnerships and venture into unknown territory. Here, Qatar Airways distinguishes itself from a highly competitive landscape with our award-winnings World's best business class. While most other international carriers are focused on their first class cabins, Qatar has brought the same luxury, comfort, and amenities to the business traveller. Having been named the world's best for two consecutive years, our vision for business continues to evolve as we respond to travellers' feedback and we expand to new destinations and seek to outdo even ourselves. To comprehend, to comprehend our business class cabin, simply imagine a luxury spa, a world class cinema, a five star hotel, and a world renowned restaurant. If all, or indeed, if any of those things could fly. Our business class seats are fully adjustable, they're life beds, offering Dior amenity kits, designer sleeper suits and full-size pillows. Our 17-inch LCD screens provide over a 1,000 forms of audio, visual, and interactive entertainment to be enjoyed through noise-cancelling headphones. Our Celebrity Chef menu is the only place above or below the clouds where you can sample Nobu, Tom Aitkins, Vinit Bhatia, and Ranji Choehri all on the same menu Even our extensive wine list was selected by our dedicated master of wine, who has gone so far to test his selections at a high altitude testing on Mount Everest. While that may seem seem lavish, we believe the world needs a better business class for a better class of business. Both here in the United States and around the world, the average passenger is now flying further And the old standards simply don't cut it for long distance flights. In response, we've engineered a comfortable, productive space for business travelers to maximize their time in the air and arrive on time with a fresh, and so they're fully focused on their business and their destination. But it doesn't have to end there. On the ground, we have just unveiled the world's newest and most advanced airport. Hamad International Airport in Doha. At a cost of nearly $15 billion, Hamad can serve over 30 million passengers at the moment with a projected capacity of over 15 million passengers beyond 2015. Much like the world's best business class, Hamad is filled with luxurious amenities such as a swimming pool, a fitness centre, two squash courts, but the focus is still on the business traveller. Our Al Mojan Business Class Lounge is a spacious, productive environment, complete with Qatar's five-star service and dining options. The Middle East has already become the new centre for world aviation, and millions of business travellers have already come to think of Hamad International Airport, of their base of operations in the Middle East. Our membership in the One World Alliance and our strong partnership with American Airlines here in the US offers our customers today a network opportunity of over 800 worldwide destinations. As we continue to define the airline of the future, the competition is fierce. It continues to get fiercer, and the challenge is great and continues to get greater. But at Qatar, we're confident that Qatar Airways will continue to lead the way as the world's only five-star airline, facilitating world-class travel, expanding new horizons, and most importantly for all of us in the room, driving global business into the 21st century and beyond. Thank you.
3: Thank you for having me here um, just want to make a note to dr. Anthony you actually offered me a Malone fellowship once and then Fulbright took me and that took me on a trajectory where I went into US aid afterwards and so you lost me to to the donors but twenty years later I still think uh, think about the National Council very uh, favorably I also want to say that It's really interesting to me to see how things have changed. I am gonna give you some new data, but I published a book in 1996 on business and economic history in Saudi Arabia. It was sponsored by the mission. And the idea that just in that period of time, there are now 100,000 students in the states, then I suspect it was probably around 10 to 15. Um, we were doing a series, which I wish the, the cultural mission would pick up again, which was publishing the research of Saudi doctoral students, because they either go back or they get absorbed into companies, and then people don't know how good their research was. But now we are seeing these people as heads of corporations, senior executives, and so forth, and that's, that's great. Um, I'm also gonna put out a controversial marker. I, two things. I'm gonna try to tie three disparate ideas together, which is based on some research series we're doing. Private sector investment, official um, development assistance, and particularly in the Middle East, and then this idea of group disaffection, and data that we're actually sponsoring uh, with the uh, Fund for Peace, or using the Fund for Peace's data. But I wanna, I I just wanna put it out there, this whole discussion about the youth bulge, I know Andrew Natsios made it very popular, and and I'm not someone that says it doesn't exist, but that's not enough, and it's also not enough to say that just because it's there, we have to have some policies on it, we have to have distinct skills-based investment um, in these countries, we need workforce development that goes beyond foreign investment, and that's one of the things that our data is going to show. One of the things that my company runs for USAID is a global program called the School Dropout Prevention Program. I wasn't really planning on talking about this, but almost every panel has talked about this issue of youth unemployment. Well, by far, by, I mean, by far, globally, the, re- the highest rate of When there is economic shock in a household, that is the highest uh, reason, uh, most likely reason that someone drops out of school. So unless we start addressing some of these issues at the household income level, you're not going to get past some of these larger policy discussions. So let me give you a couple of of insights here. Creative Associates, you may know, is a development consulting firm. We're one of the largest. If you take out the UN agencies, we're in the top five for uh, US aid. We have some contracts with the Millennium Challenge Account, the World Bank, uh, other international organizations, a few direct government contracts. Now, we're sponsoring two research series right now, um, and I'm, that's where I'm going to draw these bits of data from. One is Global Trends in Development and we are looking in advance of the post-2015 Millennium Challenge Goals, following the process, sees what's coming out of them, and we're trying to drive that down into the country level. I specialize in the Middle East for the most part. Um, Then we're also doing a series, and this is the one that's based on um, um, the uh, Fragile States Index and the the Fund for Peace Data Collections, Um, and it's on fragility and resilience. And the whole point of this research series is to look to explore the correlates between economic growth, or the lack thereof, and drivers of conflict. And that's very interesting, because what we've done is just take the indicators, the economic indicators, out of their 30-some, their portfolio of 30-some, and each one of those has sub-indicators, and then we're following this up, actually with surveys in-country. But let me start with something ten years ago even certainly twenty years ago official development assistance donor agencies by far dominated the amount of money that was going for poverty reduction and other basic today it's only nineteen percent Okay, that's a third that's literally a third of what it was twenty years ago and it's half of what it was ten years ten years ago what does that mean well if you look actually um public has is now nineteen percent that means eighty one percent either comes um, through private foundations, corporate social responsibility programs which are now very large okay um all, well, all sorts of investments, the Islamic Development Fund, all of these have grown out of nothing. The Dubai Ports Authority now has a very large fund, and of course it invests in the areas that um, are in its interests, like workforce development, but there's a big change in the global, and in the Middle East, there's even a bigger change because of direct government assistance. Okay, the Saudis giving money to the Egyptians, the Emiratis. So, what does that have to do with anything? Well, (laughs) so this correlates of economic growth and drivers of conflict series that we're doing. Let me just give you two examples of how this fits together. In Egypt, for example, so right now the first three countries we're doing we're finished with our study in in Egypt. We have actually an an analysis of the global data set. Um, Pakistan and then Honduras are the other uh, ones that we're doing right now. We're going to go on then with more um, of the Middle East. Okay, so political legitimacy. We wanna talk about participation, political legitimacy, these sorts of things. Well, the fact is that if you actually go through the indicators, the seven sub-indicators, and then into other, other types of polling, you find out that economic performance, the ability to get jobs are actually, they really are how people perceive a government's ability um, to um, provide services or to be legitimate. Okay? In Egypt in 2013, on a scale of 1 to 10, those economic indicators, 10 being bad by the way, um, was 9. But what's sort of interesting about that was that they really weren't any higher in 2010. Okay? So you have to go deeper than just the unemployment rates. And so what we found out, and this is interesting, um, okay, for example, inequality actually was more of a driver in people's perceptions of conflict than poverty. <coughs> okay? The fact that someone could be shut out of a job for WASTA, or that investment didn't plan, or that equity, Uh, isn't achieved class inequity and employment was a larger driver of conflict than unemployment okay now that's really kind of interesting you know I can deal with being unemployed there was a seventy percent increase in Egypt in the last five years of jobs in the informal sector now this is a big driver of conflict because jobs in the informal sector aren't permanent, they're not protected by labor laws, and they don't actually get recognized investment. So no formal sector bank loans and so on and so forth. So these things become, I mean, so if you look at what are the, not just the economic indicators, but what are the drivers of conflict in, and parallel with them, you, you get a, a really different and I think more defined view on top of that, one of the other big the, the, the larger uh, picture fund for the d- development uh, indicators is group grievance and conflict risk. Well, now, this is also very interesting, because, yeah, you know, governments get on- overthrown by groups. We know this. Interestingly enough, which goes along with some of the things I was just trying to get to you earlier, or talking about earlier, is that the groups are different. They're dramatically different than what they were. The highest disaffection rate among Egyptians was actually the college student age, college students. They led in large part this revolution that probably you know, the um, poor people in upper Egypt would have never done and so what's happened is that there's been a shift of expectations among a group that actually provided stability the middle class and the college graduates and when their unemployment went dramatically up they actually knew how to organize they actually knew how to seek investment they knew how to do social media so I think it's very interesting now let me give you another one that I that I personally find stunning and hard to believe but it but once you think about it I think you can see it. In the minds of many people, foreign direct investment is equated with corruption. Okay, now this creates a really odd cycle. Okay, so you're in Egypt, you're coming out of things, jobs are the number one thing that CC has to do, and formal sector jobs, because the fact informality has reached such extraordinary heights. Um, means you know there's got to be investment, right? But because of the past history, the perception, the Suez Canal development, multi-billion-dollar development, is seen as buy-offs. It's seen as foreign intrusion. So I don't know how to deal with this, but I want to put it out there. If if youth, and it's the educated youth that are the most disaffected, if they want jobs but they don't trust the private sector then we've got a real problem and I would what I would put out to the members of the council and the the US Arab Chamber and the AmChams around the world is that when your companies make investment let's think a little bit more let's think about putting workforce development for the local populations into the equation Into the investment, and I don't mean some offset program where you build a hospital. That would be good But I mean you know when when you come in put in the the training center because again among the youth polled Okay Their disaffection with government was also related to the fact that they didn't have, even they perceived, they didn't have the skills to get new jobs. And when they see AmCham or universities publish that in fact there's 117,000 new jobs with American companies in Egypt, it's just they can't get them. Or they're going to foreign labor. And while most of this is in the, it's very interesting as well to see these things across borders. Jordan is facing much the same thing, but for different reasons, obviously. They have different population masses and migrations and so forth. Um, but in Pakistan, for example, on the state legitimacy front, the national government had almost no legitimacy whatsoever. Provincial governments did. And they are actually the reflection in provinces of how. Um, employment and education and and government legitimacy. In Honduras, the government has no legitimacy at all. It said that, in fact, they didn't look for any level of government for services or jobs or anything else. By far, the mafiosos have the power and the resources. So, how does this affect the Middle East? I do want to try to push that, but Look, you have in the GCC countries, an odd mix of things, a really high approval rate of government services. I mean, the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Kuwaitis. I mean, how could you not like the government services that you get in those countries, or the infrastructure that they're investing in? On the other hand, there's another study by a woman named uh, Rasha Hakim, 14 country panel analysis, and the return on investment in human capital in the Arab countries is lowest in the world. What does that mean? Does that mean that investment in human capital is going back to the Philippines, or does it mean, you know, what? I don't know, but it's we have to correct it. Um, The GCC is surrounded by unstable countries, even if it is unstable, and they are investing at records amounts to create political stability. It seems to me that we need to rethink that a little bit in our policy analysis to look at the economic stability that is going to go along with this. Um, I think that the GC countries' um, economies are failing badly in the point of youth employment and not just youth employment, but again, and, and you have to be really careful about this whole discussion about the youth bulge and youth employment because if household levels, there are many instances where we have invested improperly and household incomes have gone down because the kids have replaced their parents in the workplace. Okay, so it has to be tied to this institutionalization of workforce development in terms of training programs and and so forth. But this is again, in the GCC states, you have this uh, conundrum of they have wonderful facilities, they're not really having wonderful outputs in terms of employment and particularly in those politically sensitive age groups so and regional trade really hasn't gone up Um, regional investment has actually gone up but regional trade hasn't and that's that's an interesting thing if you're trying to create employment so I could go on and on I think actually I'm one of the biggest fans of of the Gulf states that there are but I do think that the region itself is screaming for not just a discussion about the political dynamics, but about the economic and the, and, and the employment stabilization interventions that need to happen. Thank you.
4: I thought that was a marvelous piece by Dr. Wright. One of the problems that we Uh, face in the Western world is that we have isolated economics, business, finance, and everything that goes with it, away from the larger world. And it's gone on a long time. Uh, Too uh, too many of us have read Adam Smith, The Wealth of Nations, and forgot that he wrote another book uh, known as The Theory of Moral Sentiments, in which he linked economics, morality, ethics, and politics. You can't take one out of the other, and yet I, I believe that we persist in doing so. We've marginalized the study of politics when we talk about business, we try not to relate uh, business to its political effects. Right now, uh, I would like to argue that the consequences of economic progress, of everything else that has happened that we cite so well in the Middle East is a large part of the turmoil that has uh, occurred. The Policymakers Conference is open under the shadow of the most momentous moment in the Arab world, perhaps since the Seljuks over. This is, uh, sounds a little bit pretentious, but remember that it's until it's been a millennium, almost a thousand years, that Arabs once more are arbiters of their own faith. Until the 20th century, few Arabs lived under governments run by Arabs. Until recently, most Arabs lived under governments whose ideological structures derived from Western models. Currently, the Arab Spring has morphed into a transcendental reordering of the Arab world. National boundaries, as set by non-Arab actors, I include the Turks and the Iranians, with the Europeans and the Israelis, are at risk of being swept away. Existing Arab governments have become paranoid or worse. They cannot yet comprehend the magnitude of what has happened, nor truly grasp how to deal with the powerful forces that have been unleashed by the Arab Spring. I was, about 20 years ago, literally, a very unlikely source described the problems and predicted the outbreak of the Arab Spring. In an earlier job, I was the acting coordinator of counterterrorism at the Department of State and had occasion to have dinner with Omar Suleiman, who was then the head of the Egypt's intelligence service. He told me, the course of dinner, the most dangerous man in Egypt is the son of a boot black with a graduate degree in chemical engineering who is now driving a taxi. Had the kids stayed a boot black, we wouldn't have had a problem. He then went on to say that neither his government, nor in his opinion any other Arab government, had the foggiest notion of how to deal with literally millions of college graduates whose hopes have been dashed. Omar Suleiman correctly understood that the development of finance, business, uh, human resources, and the entire spectrum in the Arab world has failed Arab youth. Daesh, the Islamic State, does have a plan. They've become the champions of the resentful and embittered Muslim youth and have successfully hijacked the cause. How else could they have attracted such really formidable intellectual power into their ranks? They run circles around us, around their enemies in the social media. They recruit effectively all over the the globe. I would hazard a guess that Daesh has more college graduates in its ranks per capita than does the U.S. Army. Dr. Uh, Wright spoke of the importance of college graduates at the time of the Egyptian revolution that brought down Husni Mubarak. Very important moment, moment happened. The Egyptian army ordered its troops into Tahrir Square and then realized that the soldiers themselves, because now the Egyptian army was recruiting from college graduates so they could run all the modern equipment, that the soldiers themselves were the brothers, cousins, and college classmates of the kids in Tahrir Square. As we look at the development of business, finance and human resources, we must consider that in recent times, our own efforts have done little to help advance uh, uh, the cause of the larger population in the Arab world. Most of our business has served to enrich only a very small minority of Arab businessmen, usually closely associated or even part of the political establishment. Rarely have American and Western companies indicated more than a lip service commitment to improving the lot of the average Arab. We look to maximize returns and reduce costs, provide shareholder value, that's what we're all about, and correctly. And thus, in the poor Arab countries, even in the poor Arab countries like Jordan and elsewhere, we don't hire locally if we can find cheaper Filipinos and Bangladeshis. Daesh has made that part of their message and has categorized American business and European business in general as part of the enemy. Mind you, this does not make Daesh anti-business and anti-progress. Most Islamist politicians I have met are dyed-in-the-wool capitalists. They preach free enterprise with an important CSR component, but combine it with an appeal that its benefits should accrue to their fellow Arabs and to fellow Muslims. The Western world, as I said earlier, has deluded itself into believing that finance and economics alone determine human passions and the direction the governments will take. Without taking political, social, and other uh, factors into account, Business in the end, business, economics, and finance will make serious mistakes. The EU recently demonstrated just how bad bad relying on economics alone uh, can turn out. Their approach in the Ukraine demonstrated a unbelievable misunderstanding of Russia and of Putin's motives. The the Wall Street Journal crowd after the imposition of sanctions that the Moscow Stock Exchange took a 5% hit. What they didn't uh, note is that Putin didn't care. Uh, There are other factors and other powers at hand and the European Union has abandoned them completely. I doubt, I fear very much for the European Union that it cannot stand external shocks because it is built entirely on an economic structure and if something develops where people start getting shot, the Union will be unable to respond. I would also like to take a moment to address the profound misunderstanding of the role that Qatar has played in, uh, in the Arab Spring. False or distorted information has now become truth to be cited by speakers even at this conference. I'm going to review a little bit of recent Qatari history going back to the time that I first was appointed to serve as ambassador. 1995, Sheikh Hamid bin Khalifa came to power, and realized that the world had changed, that the world had changed around him. One of the first events that I attended in Qatar was the opening of the uh, consultative assembly, the Majlis ash-Shura, in which Sheikh Hamid delivered a speech that included the following line. This is the period of greatest Arab weakness, the greatest weakness in the modern Arab world because Arab governments deny the Arab people the right to participate and contribute. Every Arab ambassador in the room was feverishly taking notes to write the letter of protest to the Emir the next day. Uh, It isn't that the Qataris are natural Democrats or more progressive than the rest. It's that they have, in my view at the time, uh, one of the few places in the Arab world where there was an understanding that change was coming, where demographics had changed. When I first went to the Gulf in 1964, uh, just to, Uh, give you some differences. The mortality rate at age five was 90%. Literacy among male Gulf citizens was below 10%. Literacy among women Gulf citizens was statistically insignificant. There was no television, there was no internet, there was virtually no international travel. Today, all that has turned on its head. Uh, Their infant mortality rate is lower than it is in any major American city. Literally 100 percent of every Gulf citizen that I can think of, uh, below the age of 50, is literate. Two th- thirds to three quarters, depending on whose statistics you look at, are uh, college graduates. Are women. You have television. You have the internet. You have a population that is accustomed to jetting to London for the weekend, a little bit of shopping, and coming back. It is not the the Gulf of th- uh, 50 years ago. More specifically. It is not a region that can be governed the way it was in the past. The Qataris, Sheikh Hamid understood this is coming and has tried to change his country. In the process, I fear that he has been seen as the catalyst for change in the rest of the region. Al Jazeera, the first truly uncensored Arab news media has been blamed by many as the catalyst. The introduction of American universities that have complete academic freedom uh, in the country, six of them. The introduction of American think tanks, the 80-odd annual conferences, which were the only place where Arab intellectuals could meet, talk in, uh, in the hallways, and go back to their home countries without fear that somebody was listening and was passing it on to the secret police. Change there in the Qatari view was inevitable. It needed to be accelerated and it needed to be channeled in the positive direction. Just as a footnote, at one point, the Qatari Prime Minister, Hamid Bin Jassim, uh, told CNN, he said, democracy is knocking at our door and whether or not I like it, I've got to open it because if I don't, they're gonna knock the door down. So where does this leave us today? There is an assumption today that Qatar is, sorry, that was actually telling myself to shut up at this point, so another couple of minutes. Uh, There's an assumption today that Qatar is a financer of uh, ISIS, of uh, various uh, uh, Islamist extremist organizations, a little bit for the record. Egypt, the day that Husni Mubarak stepped down, was overthrown, Qatar began to provide significant aid to the Egyptian, to the SCAF, to the Egyptian military government. Uh, The Egyptian, the SCAF replaced their government with a semi-independent civilian government. Qatar continued to provide economic aid to Egypt. The the Muslim Brotherhood won elections. Qatar continued to provide economic aid uh, to the Muslim Brotherhood government. The Muslim Brotherhood was overthrown by a coup. Qatar, like the United States, expressed displeasure, but continued to provide aid until the Egyptian government, for reasons of its own, decided that they didn't like Qatari money anymore. Syria is another case in point. Uh, In Syria, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey had invested heavily in the Bashar al-Assad government because they thought uh, that Bashar al-Assad was attractive, modern, progressive, a change from his father, and a person in whom whom they could count on to react differently uh, in his country and move the country forward. They were deeply disappointed when when his government responded by simply machine gunning peaceful demonstrations. All three countries piled in to help the rebels. Uh, Whether they got their act together right at the beginning is an open question. The fact is that the Qataris were here, Hamid bin Jassim was here in Washington, basically begging the United States government to say, how can I help the revolution? Please give me some guidance. Please give me, where do I put it? And unfortunately, we dithered. Uh, And I've really run over my time, so uh, my apologies. I would like to say that Qatar is a really great place to do business. Uh, uh, Mr. Johnson has understated just how comfortable Qatar Airways' business class is. And, uh, <laughs> and anyway, thank you very much
5: thank you. So I know it's getting late, I'll try to make my remarks brief. Uh, Thanks to the National Council for having us again this year. We appreciate the invitation. And thanks to all of you for joining us and staying with us today. Uh, My name is Nathan Regan. I'm the country manager for the Bahrain Economic Development Board here in the United States. Uh, The Economic Development Board is a quasi-governmental agency that's chaired by His Royal Highness the Crown Prince of Bahrain and led by the Minister of Transportation, Kamal Ahmed. We have offices, uh, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about who EDB is so you know who we are and what we're doing. Uh, We have offices that are located in in Japan, China, India, Germany, and the UK, each embedded with the Bahrain Embassy, such as we are here in the United States. Our mission is simple. We increase foreign direct investment into the Kingdom, creating jobs for Bahrainis and raising awareness of Bahrain in the global marketplace. Our services are complementary, and we seek to foster stronger business relations with U.S. companies who are considering the region as a place for investment. Uh, As some of you might know, since we're in a room full of people who know something about the Middle East, uh, Bahrain was the first GCC country to sign a free trade agreement with the United States in 2006 and has strong economic, political, and military ties to the U.S. The U.S. Navy's Fifth Fleet is located in Manama and calls Bahrain home. The American Bar Association has strong economic ties uh, and political ties with the Bahraini Ministry of Justice, and works closely to continually improve the rule of law and regulation. Uh, there's a U.S. bilateral um, investment treaty signed by President Clinton uh, to help stimulate investment in the region and creates a safe atmosphere for U.S. companies in the region. So I really want to talk about success stories. U.S. companies, because I'm dealing with U.S. companies on a daily basis, uh, most of my work is not done in, in D.C. I'm actually traveling around the United States meeting with companies that actually have business in the region already, who are looking to do business in the region or looking for investment opportunities in the region. So I'm dealing on a, on a regular basis with U.S. companies. So I wanna highlight some of those today uh, just to give you a flavor of what's happening in the region because I really believe that the business community has a very short-term memory when it comes to politics. Uh, most of the people that I'm dealing with aren't, don't really care about the political uh, things that are happening between the U.S. government and the region. So I think some of these companies will, will ring a bell for you. Kraft Foods, is actually one of our biggest success stories in the region. Uh, they moved their entire operation from Australia to Bahrain uh, to service the region. And it's to be close to the Saudi market and the rest of the GCC market. And actually they've recently announced that they're going to be doubling their facility, uh, the size of their facility in Bahrain. So it's just another indication of how, uh, how strong the, the economy is in the GCC. Kimberly Clark uh, has 122 employees in Bahrain and using uh, Bahrain as a launch pad into the region. West Point Home, which some of you might not know, uh, but they manufacture textiles. Uh, They're a big textile manufacturer. They employ 1,600 people in Bahrain. Uh, So when you talk about employment, uh, certainly in a country of Uh, 1.2 million people, uh, it's certainly a sizable investment, and we appreciate them being there. Uh, UPS, GE, Microsoft, we have a lot of big name uh, companies that are located in Bahrain, but I think the real gist of what we try to do is really uh, target small to medium-sized enterprises. Those are the companies that are actually investing in these countries like Qatar, the Emirates, Bahrain, uh, Saudi. I mean, they're all coming to the region to take advantage of this, of this marketplace. It's, it's a $2 trillion market. So if you've got a company that's actually doing business in Europe or Asia or Latin America, you know, the Middle East cannot be ignored. Uh, for the market that it represents. And yesterday, I was actually in Chicago with our ambassador uh, on a new city tour, and we actually met with a company based in the Chicagoland region. Uh, it's called Bell Racing Helmets, and I didn't know this because they didn't go through our organization to get their commercial registration, but they're, they're uh, manufacturing racing helmets uh, for Formula One, and they're moving all of their manufacturing facility from China and Italy to Bahrain, to be close to the Formula One circuit, um, and it 's really interesting because they 're going to be hiring one hundred and fifty local people to be manufacturing this uh, these racing helmets so it 's another example, a recent example of u uh, s companies that are actually investing in the region and using the Bahrain free trade agreement and the local hire uh, employment talent that we have in Bahrain to do this and I, we mentioned some, you mentioned something about uh, about labor funds you know it 's very interesting because Bahrain actually has a labor fund state-sponsored labor fund, and we have a Bahrainization quota. So if you have a U.S. company that's setting up, Bahrain says you have to actually employ a certain amount of Bahrainis to actually make sure that the investment is actually coming to what we want it to be. So I think it's another interesting example of how they're doing it. Um, This year alone we actually already have 12 U.S. companies who are seeking a commercial registration uh, to begin doing business in the GCC out of Bahrain. Uh, Last year we were successful in attracting more than 35 companies from more than 20 markets across North America, Europe, and Asia, resulting in $114 million of investment, uh, which was roughly 12% higher than 2012's figures, which I think is interesting, resulting in uh, 800 jobs that were created for local Bahrainis. Um, And these are in sectors from financial services, logistics, manufacturing, healthcare, and ICT. A couple of key figures that I want people to know today uh, before we leave, other than the free trade agreement, that is actually um, has a zero percent tax. So I kind of have coined this phrase that we're kind of the Delaware of the Middle East because (laughs) all these companies are coming and setting up in the region and taking advantage of a free trade agreement and a zero percent tax, which I think is very interesting. And it's a zero percent corporate tax and personal income tax. We also are offering something rather unique in the region, and it's 100% 100 ownership. Um, In some of our competing markets, um, if you're setting up a business, you may be required to take a local partner at a majority stake. In Bahrain, we don't have any free trade zones, and there are no requirements for uh, partnerships. We certainly think that you should take a local partner, especially in the region, but it's not required for you to do so. So I think it's another unique factor that sets Bahrain apart. I mentioned Hemkeen. Um yeah, those are the reasons that I wanted to talk to you today about Bahrain and the economic development efforts that we're doing. Um, I think it's really great that we have uh, the Qataris and all of our neighbors uh, next to us that are actually doing the same type of efforts, and certainly Qatar Airways uh, and Emirates and Etihad are all really great drivers of economic development, certainly having a direct flight. We, we appreciate you opening all your direct flights. Uh, into the region, because it allows U.S. businesses to actually come directly to the region and do business there, and makes it very convenient and comfortable. So thank you for your time today, and appreciate your attention.
0: <laughs> so wrap up. Uh,
6: good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I do want to also echo uh, colleagues on the panel in and, and thanking the National Council on uh, US-Arab relations and, and putting this prestigious event together again and uh, the role that the uh, chamber can play in this. So we're very thankful for this. And thank you to all of you. Uh, we do have a game seven tonight. And I liken you to the fans who stay for the ninth inning in a ten-zero route. So uh, thank you for being here uh, for, for our panel today. We really do appreciate that. Um, I'm Steve Lutz. I work at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, We're the the world's largest business advocacy organization representing the interests of about three million American companies of every size and and sector around the globe. And as John alluded to, we have uh, American Chambers of Commerce, which are our affiliates in, uh, uh, let's see, over over, well over 100 countries um, uh, around the globe as well. Well, Of course, we're known for our domestic work, uh, particularly here in Washington with Capitol Hill and the alphabet soup of regulatory agencies. Um, but in fact, the chambers uh, international division is our largest, and that's of course reflective of the fact that 90% 95% of the world's customers uh, live beyond the borders of the United States. I work on our Middle East Middle East Affairs team, and uh, for everybody defines the Middle East differently. Uh, for us, uh, that covers everything from the GCC uh, to Egypt in the West, um, up through the Levant and Iraq, and to Turkey in the North and at the chamber as any advocacy organization we're focused on uh, advocacy uh, in the policy regulatory legislative area and of course access and engagement uh, with the private sector and the respective governments in the region and my my thoughts my impressions here are are really uh, basically influenced by that daily activity of working with kind of u.s corporate america smes uh, the governments in the middle east and our u.s government and of course uh, those in the private sector uh, in the region those are the folks that we work with on a regular basis and perhaps most importantly I think that the big thing taking that we take away uh, from our conversations and our interaction with those stakeholders is uh, that the corporate perspective on the Middle East uh, from the United States is quite strong Um, and of course you know there are many companies that have been in the decade or have been in the region for decades and they're, they're well-established um, but what we see is that the entrenched companies um, they're expanding their depth they're making new uh, new investments and and really growing their footprint and we're seeing more and more um, American companies entering these markets for the first time and many uh, outside outside the multinationals so you know the traditional kind of SMEs and they're finding I think a, a receptive welcoming governments business partners and certainly customers and this is of course very important we're in a global economy as we all well know and we're competing with the Koreans the Chinese uh, the Europeans and many others but at the end of the day I think as you uh, talk to people in the region American goods and certainly American services remain the gold standard so the door is wide open for those companies that are willing uh, to get into the region um, of course, it's very difficult to generalize. Across the entire region, each company has its own unique opportunities and challenges when it comes to doing business. And many on this panel have uh, talked uh, about some of those specific countries and, and broadly about trends in the region. Um, just for the sake of brevity, you know, I kind of lump it into uh, three categories, uh, three kind of uh, areas. And of course, you know, first you have uh, the GCC states, where a primary differentiator is stability. And, uh, the governments are stable, there's continuity, and for businesses, you know, of course, that's a, a lot of greater certainty and less exposure for their investments. And while, the, uh, while certainly the business environments and the ability to do business vary um, across the GCC when it comes to things like the regulatory framework, uh, protection of intellectual property, um, there's certainly a desire among the GCC countries to grow trade and investment and in the relationship uh, with the U.S. private sector and what we're seeing from uh, GCC uh, the leaders is that there's an eye to the future. Um, as we all know, of course, the development of the the oil and gas sector has been instrumental to the development and the economic progress of these states and while the sector of course will remain critical for many decades to come, uh, the leaders in the GCC are wisely, you know, looking to develop and diversify their economies pursuing quote unquote vision plans and looking to broaden their 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 emphasis and their investments into building up kind of a knowledge based sectors uh, very important and since other panelists i'm going to try to cite one um one country in each of the three buckets and I know we've kind of cut we've well covered Bahrain and in Qatar so using the UAE as an example in this category the chamber recently hosted uh, the Minister of Economy and Minister uh, Al Mansouri he spoke of their visionary uh, economic plan that promotes investment and growth in these knowledge-based sectors he specifically cited uh, renewable energy and the development of Masdar City um, for those of you who aren't familiar with that you know it describes itself as an emerging clean tech community that offers a creative and an entrepreneurial atmosphere where businesses can thrive and innovation can flourish all within the sustainable community that seeks the lowest environmental footprint possible all done in a commercially viable manner. Um, in the UAE and in fact across the GCC we see many other opportunities and investments being made in healthcare, and information technology, education, tourism, and of course, you know, building on what are modern, efficient, green infrastructure systems to support their growing populations and economies, um, which of course brings us to two big events coming up. Um, of course, in Qatar, we know of the uh, the upcoming World Cup in Doha, in UAE. You know, they'll host uh, Expo 2020, the first time this World Expo um, will appear in the region, expected to attract 25 million visitors. Um, to the Expo. So incredible opportunities there associated with these sort of monumental events. In closing out this category, um, I would just point out that American companies, of course, served as a key partner in the development of the energy sector, and we believe, of course, American companies are and will continue to play uh, as key partners as these respective states develop and build out these knowledge-based sectors and prove critical to future generations and the economies for decades to come. Moving to another category, um, categorize that as states, uh, you know, in turmoil, um, some experiencing outright conflict. And one I'm very familiar with and that I cover at the chamber and and work a lot on, so I'll use that as an example, is is Iraq. And the chamber has been very active, and I know Ambassador Faley, uh, a good friend of the chamber, was here. Um, We've been very active there in trying to grow this commercial relationship. And, of course, we're all very familiar with the, the horrific emergence of ISIS and the threat it directly poses, and as well as the ongoing sectarian tensions and uh, the baghdad Biel uh, struggle with uh, territorial and resource issues. But despite it all, there remain significant opportunities for those that are willing to pursue and engage in the work there. Um, as you can imagine, Iraq essentially needs everything and it needs in the traditional civil infrastructure roads bridges ports uh, water and sewer systems electricity production and a grid and then equally important in the social infrastructure uh, housing schools and hospitals and american companies uh, can and are uh, outside uh, what we would think of as the traditional companies that fit with iraq it's not just energy and defense we see many other types of companies in a lot of other sectors that are in iraq and they are doing business and two that we've been working with at the chamber um, are in Basra, uh, the, the quote-unquote commercial capital, deep in Iraq south, uh, insulated from ISIS. Uh, for example, I'll, I'll cite two to give you a couple examples. One is a, a small company based in Virginia, the Intellex International. They've begun a, a construction system to basically streamline uh, the ports in in in, in Iraq, and the port capacity management system will provide scheduling predictability, it'll bring efficiencies, it'll save costs. And right now, it's, uh, it's in, going to be implemented early in next year in Umm the largest port, and then they'll expand that to serve secondary ports in Iraq. Another example, also a Virginia-based company, Nawa. Um, they're managing the port of Basra, uh which is located on the Shat-Arab. And again, it's a, this is a, a containerized terminal that they're running. It's a a hub for um, Iraq's oil and gas sector, as well as the merchant class, uh, doing uh, important work there in Basra. So while there are certainly um, acute challenges posed by uh, ISIS and and other challenges that are uh, well known to Iraq, it's important to know that, that many opportunities exist for American companies, and there's certainly a desire on the part of Iraqis and the current Iraqi government to have more American businesses doing these uh, projects and work. And turning to this last category, it's, it's more or less kind of a catch-all. As I've said, it's really hard to generalize um, with each, company, each country having distinct challenges and opportunities. But in many ways, this last category, it's the countries that are in transition. For example, we know in Jordan, you know they're having to deal with the massive influx of refugees, and that certainly impacts their economies, their budgets, and what they're able to do. But I'll use the example of Egypt. We've talked a lot about Egypt. Um, I'm familiar with Egypt, and we do a lot of work with Egypt. And, of course, they are certainly in a transition um, on their fourth government since the fall of Hosni Mubarak. And what I can tell you is, at least from the U.S. corporate perspective, interest in Egypt right now is incredibly strong. Um, The Chamber, in two weeks, we're going to lead the largest business mission we've ever done in the whole history of the U.S. Chamber, not just to the Middle East, but anywhere in the world at any time, to Egypt. Um, So we're very excited this and it just really underscores the interest and level of optimism that the opportunities in Egypt have to offer. Um, We see under President Sisi's leadership an administration that has acknowledged that they need to pursue things like fiscal labor, tax, regulatory, uh, real estate reform to improve and make a business climate. Uh, that creates a more dynamic Egyptian economy and is more welcoming to foreign investment and uses that investment wisely. And we certainly see progress on subsidy reforms a long way to go, um, and they're working to improve the investment loan. They have a new investment minister that comes from the private sector and gets it at the end of the day. Um, we've mentioned that the flagship projects like the Suez Canal Expansion Project, um, and there's other opportunities as well. That's not just all that's going on in Egypt. We see them uh, looking to uh, expand and do work in the Golden Triangle in the areas of mining and industrial development, uh, Cairo Airport. Um, and we see them making regulatory reforms and investments in other key sectors like agriculture with an eye to food security, health and IT, um, again all with an eye to move Egypt forward. So in conclusion I would just say there really are incredible opportunities for American companies throughout the region. Um, Businesses shouldn't let the media headlines drive where your interests are, how you make your assessments of these opportunities. The ease of doing business and the specific opportunities and challenges certainly vary country by country. And we would just encourage all to get in the game if you're not already, because certainly our global competition, they're there, and we just can't afford to sit on the sidelines and perhaps most importantly, these countries want American companies there. They want our products. They want us working on their projects, and they certainly want our services. So thank you very much. And again, thank you to the council.
0: Well, we've had, sir. Thank you very much for all the uh, for all the panelists for incredibly good discussion of the situations in seven to nine minutes. I'm. Please, everybody stuck to the time limit. We are a little bit ahead of schedule. We have three questions that came in from the audience. If there are any more, please send them forward. One was basically, the first one was to to Qatar Airways. Uh, We talked about Qatar, uh, the accolades of the airline, obviously five stars. But uh, the question is operating complexities. What are the operating complexities of an airline and air travel in Arab countries? And then there was also a follow-up, I think, with regard to the Qatar's interest in Sub-Saharan Africa. So, uh, if you could handle yes, those. Certainly. Thanks,
2: John. I'll, yeah. I'll answer both, if I may, at the same time. Um, just in terms of um, of, of growth, um, Mr. Theodos um, mentioned the incredible growth of well-being um, in the region over the last 50 years, and Um, Air transport and the airlines there have taken also a very uh, progressive uh, approach in developing um, services. A progressive view on expansion um, within the Arab region um, and beyond. Um, Simply um, our our model is like other airlines um, in the Gulf and uh, around the world is uh, we look at markets, um, we look at whether they're economically viable. And whether um, that route is able to be served and whether the license um, is uh, available. And that's the model we'll continue to use, uh, and other carriers in the region and, and around the world. And um, I mentioned earlier that Qatar has over $70 billion worth of aircraft on order. We need to fly them, um, we need to continue. Um, Growing um, the region uh, and growing opportunities to and from the region, and also opportunities to the businesses who um, who you belong to and are part of your networks, um, and also opportunities. Uh, we've just launched our 145th destination, uh, Djibouti. Uh, the question came: Is uh, what are we? Are we interested in uh, developing further services, particularly to? Sub-Saharan Africa. The question is yes, and once again, we'll use the same model. Is the market economically viable? Um, do we have uh, the light capacity for it? And if the like, is a license available, and if all of those three get the green light, um, we will seriously consider um, operating the service.
0: Yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, the next question came from the audience. Uh, should the Arab world and its American business partners embrace or reject the informal economy, primarily Hawala networks? So I'm not sure who wants to take that. But, but you know, uh, the yeah, it was um, <clears throat> Should the Arab world and its American business partners embrace or reject the informal economy, primarily Hawala networks?
4: So I'll take a run that? at it. I think the the barn door's uh, closed on that one. Uh, The international community, the United States and Western Europe in particular, have already taken such steps as I think we're going to soon, particularly in the GCC, see the demise of the Hawala system. I was talking to the uh, head of one of the largest private exchanges in Qatar. The Qataris have now uh, instituted uh, a, a, a regulation that every foreign worker working in Qatar must be must have a bank account uh, and that the bank uh, and that all his salary is paid into the bank account. Uh, and even though the banks don't transfer money for him, he takes the money to, uh, to a private exchange because they charge a lot less and they have a greater reach than the banks do, it is now a ma- the quote, Hawala system in Qatar is now, for all practical purposes, part of the formal uh, and legitimate banking system. Okay. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Um, last question um, for Mr. Bear. Uh, does it mean that you are trying to get Saudi students to get employment in the U.S. instead of having them returned to Saudi Arabia and building their country? So that,
1: uh, of course, we want our students to come back, but we want them to gain some experience in the United States um... because you have a lot of uh, i mean there's so many companies here that have so much experience that we're still haven't come to that point so we want them to gain that experience um, our goal is for every single saudi student to return to saudi arabia um... hopefully with an experience besides um... when they come to the united states and they go um, to the college and universities they acquire um, uh... they're exposed to the academic life um, uh, as they um, enter the social, uh, the, uh, the communities and so on, they acquire the social uh, experience in the social life, the American social life. By going to American, uh, working with American companies in the United States, they take it one step further and they get some experience in the working life of Americans um, so that um, it completes their whole total experience in the United States. So when they come back, they, are, um, they have really truly experienced American cultures. Um, I'm, I, I haven't had the chance to mention it, but uh, in 2005, King Abdullah um, initiated the um, King Abdullah uh, 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 Scholarship Abroad, and it had two purposes. One was to um, for our students to gain um, exp- I mean, acquire a good education, but the other, experience, uh, other um, purpose of that uh, program was for them to acquire cultural experience, and by going getting the the academic experience, the social experience and the professional experience, we feel that they truly um, have acquired a global experience, whether it's in the United States where nearly half of our students are or elsewhere, we have them scattered all over the world, but definitely we we do want our students to come back. Is there a risk that they will stay here? Yes, but um, uh, when I started uh, working with the students, I was pleasantly surprised um, that the majority, practically all of them, do want to go back. They just want a chance to experience what it's like to work at an American company in the United States.
0: Yeah, thank you. I, um, just as a personal item, um, for about seven years, I um, coordinated the relationship between Saudi Aramco and ExxonMobil and, and Chevron. And um, of that, comp- there were three or four different components of it. But the biggest, most popular, and probably the most productive Piece of that relationship was sending interns to Chevron, interns to Exxon Mobil, because for a year they got the experience of what it was like to operate in an environment in a refinery with corporate headquarters at very or different operating departments, and they came back with an absolutely new appreciation, new lease on life. And I'm being upstaged by the Qatar draft, no. No. but anyway, but I so I think beneficially the college experience university experience is only one component of it if you you know to business practices are tra- not necessarily transferable to the college level they have to be experienced in the field and they have to be experienced by within a disciplined approach Business U.S. business refining operations. I mean, there isn't anything more, more strict and than stringent when you've got a safety standard within a refinery operation, and the potential downside is significant if you don't follow certain procedures. So, those are the types of things you know that really pay off. And, uh, and they all come back and they all say that the best years of their life were at Chevron and uh, at ExxonMobil. Anyway, so that's, that's what, uh, you know, just to conclude um, very quickly, um, the one thing I've learned of being out there for 35 years is the environment is dynamically changing. Every day is a new day. Uh, every day there's a new opportunity. Uh, just to give you, just to drive home that point, um, I was out in Dharan in September visiting with some friends and they said, you know, that stadium that we built for the, in Jeddah it was a 70,000-seat stadium. It was a, probably a, a billion and a half dollar project, uh, built in record time, two years. The king loved it. He went through and inaugurated it for the first uh, cup, uh, Saudi cup game in, in May. Uh, and, and on the way out, he said, you know, why don't we build 11 more of these? And Aramco was charged now with... They got the message in August to build 11 new stadiums all around the country, varying in size from 40,000 seats to 70,000 seats. Now, you know, we're not we but Aramco produces oil. So they are now becoming probably the project management um, you know, go to team that will initiate these mega projects. They've had plenty of experience at it. But, but to, you know, I was out there in July, this wasn't even on the radar screen. Uh, September, all of a sudden it's 11 stadiums. So, do the math, it's 20 billion plus, plus, who knows. But anyway, dynamic, changing, daily, a new, you know, it's always something new coming around the corner. And it's a great place to do business, to live and work. So, I uh, highly recommend you going out there and doing it. Anyway, I've said enough. Thank you all, panelists, for uh, very can,
1: can I make one small comment? <laughs> Please don't forget to pick up, yeah. it gives yeah. us a brief description of the services that we provide. Most of them are free of charge, and some statistics on our. Phones. They're up front. Thank you.